We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 59 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and writes take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to ESRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. I'm very excited to welcome my longtime mentor and friend, Arch Getty, to the podcast to talk about his 30-plus year career as a historian of the Great Terror and Stalinism. I studied with Arch for many years as his graduate student at UCLA, and his understanding of the Stalinist system has had an enormous impact on me. So I thought I would invite him on to talk about some of the main threads of his work, how he understands it, and where his research is taking him from here. Arch Getty is a distinguished professor of history at UCLA, where he seeks to understand how the greatest experiment of the 20th century, led by a movement that grew out of rational, enlightened, egalitarian, and democratic traditions, resulted in dictatorship and the deaths of millions of its own people. He is the author of several books and articles on the Great Terror, political violence, and Stalinism. His most recent book is Practicing Stalinism, Bolsheviks, Boyars, and the Persistence of Tradition, published by Yale University Press. Here's Arch Getty. Your first book, The Origins of the Great Purges, was published about 30 years ago, actually 30 years last year. And in my view, it, it really set the foundation for many of the issues that you've tackled concerning the terror and Stalinism since. How do you reflect on that book today? Well, I'm, I'm pretty pleased, I think, with, with the way it held up. Back then, of course, we didn't have any archives to work with, except the so-called Smolensk archive, which was a kind of a partial thing from the war. So a lot of times we were, you know, we were peering through a glass darkly, trying to figure out what was going on. But I, I'm pleased that some of the things that I that I identified or even guessed at the time seem, seem to have borne out. The chaos of administration, uh, for example, the, the astonishing lack of political controls in a so-called totalitarian system, local autonomy, local political infighting, you know, all that has turned out to be, you know, it's, it's kind of like widely accepted now that the, that the place was, was chaotic. I, I made a circumstantial case as well that 
Stalin probably did not have uh, Sergei Kirov assassinated in 1934, and the latest research seems to bear that out. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty pleased. You know, I got some things wrong. That's for sure. For, for example, I I had guessed at the time of the book that there were there were moderate and radical factions in in the top leadership because sometimes you know different leaders seem to have different points of view and they would even creep into the public record. Well, what we know now and what I found out was that no, these are not stable factions. People took positions depending on what was advantageous for the job they happened to do. If you were an economic administrator, you know, you spoke for reasonable targets because that's easier for you. So it's, you know, it was, it's not so much political factions as sort of shifting interests based on your job. That, that kind of I didn't know at the time. But, you know, by and large, well, it's still in print, <laughs> for example. <laughs> But, you know, when it came out, it was incredibly controversial. You were attacked pretty severely oh, yeah. by, uh, by some major heavy hitters in, in Russian history, yeah. particularly with, you know, the fact that you pointed out that the, just the numbers themselves were far uh, smaller than previously imagined. Um, what was that experience like to have your first book so savagely attacked in, in the press? Well, before I got tenure, it was terrifying because, uh, you know, I had I – had, enemies, I would say, people criticizing me, actually, you know, writing to my dean saying that I shouldn't be given tenure, unsolicited attacks that way. It was pretty bad. You know, these things are, it's always bad when you're kind of unprotected and untenured and and major well-known people attack you. But it also hits you kind of on the testosterone level, you know. Uh, you know, you feel like fighting back, but how much do you fight back? Uh, what's safe to do? But we really, well, I especially in, in the political sphere, really, really kind of touched a nerve. And um, I think there were a lot of reasons for that. I think some of the reasons have to do with the fact that, you know, if you if you drew attention to anything other than Stalin's personality, it was interpreted as defending him, which was not the case at all. And it's not the case in other areas of history, uh, we can write about Napoleonic France without a, you know, necessarily it being a biography of Napoleon. But things were so embedded in a sort of Cold War historiography that, you know, Soviet history was written sometimes essentially as Stalin's biography. And if you pointed out that there were other things going on, that he didn't always get his way, or that there were frequently unintended consequences of what they did, uh, or as Sheila Fitzpatrick and Moshe Lewin pointed out, there was a society out there, you know, that that's, has its own kind of life quite apart from politics. Well, to draw attention to these other factors was regarded as taking Stalin off the hook. Well, yeah, you were you were part of that generation of so-called revisionist historians of in Western historiography of the Soviet Union. And, you know, you've already mentioned some of these, Sheila Fitzpatrick, uh, Moshe Lewin, there was also Lynn Viola and yourself and, and many others, what, what kind of the questions were revisionists like yourself and those around you asking? And what kind of questions were you asking about the Soviet system at the time? Well, it, it depended on, you know, what you were doing. I was a political, still, I'm a political historian. Most of the other so-called revisionists were, were social historians. Their point of view was that society mattered, that society frequently posed situations that the regime had to deal with, and not always successfully. But if you look at all the so-called revisionists kind of as a group, I think what you see is a sense that there was no total control here by, by the regime. 
There was no total control. There were, in fact, as, as I mentioned before, a lot of unintended consequences that society would sometimes pose or politics would sometimes pose, and that the regime, therefore, it seemed to a lot of us, was, was frequently reactive. Rather than taking initiative, they would try to take initiatives, but frequently they wouldn't work. They, were, they, they spent a lot of their time putting out fires, reacting to situations that they themselves didn't create and sometimes didn't even understand. But again, if you said that, Stalin is not necessarily in complete control of everything all the time. If you say that the Stalinist leadership was not particularly good at planning, that they uh, were constantly faced with things that they didn't understand, it sounded to a lot of people like taking them off the hook. This is a question because I was, I was talking to James Harris, who has a new book on the terror, The Great Fear. And I asked him this question about the nature of the Stalinist state, because what the revisionists seem to suggest, and, and based on what you just described, this chaos in the countryside, the regime is basically putting out fires. It's more reactive than proactive. And so this puts the question of, well, is the Stalinist state a strong state or a weak state? Where do you fall on that? Well, I'm not even sure what that means, frankly. How do you decide what is a strong state? Is a strong state a state that most of the time gets its way? Is a strong state a state that's capable of inflicting massive coercion and violence? Or is a strong, is a strong state a confident state? What does a weak state mean? Is a weak state hanging on by its fingernails? Um, I'm not sure those are, the, those are the words we ought to be using here, es especially when we haven't reached the point, in my opinion, we haven't reached the point where we really understand very much about the nature of this state. There, there are tons of archives we haven't even got to yet. The question is partly, therefore, a lack of complete information. The other question is, what do we mean strong and weak? To whom? For, for whom? How do, we, how do we measure those things? Now, I think that from the point of view of, of the public, uh, from the point of view of the, the former totalitarian school, I think we were seen as arguing for a weak state. Uh, I'm not sure we were doing that because, you know, a state that's capable of killing hundreds of thousands of people, is that strong or is that weak? Uh, it's strong, yes, because they can do it. And they did it. But it's weak because they felt like they had to. They were not particularly confident. They were afraid of their shadows. So, you know, you can be strong and weak at the same time, it seems to me. So how do you, how do you, then how do you understand this Stalinist state and how it functioned? I mean, you, you pointed to this idea that it's putting out fires, that it could commit mass violence, which it did, but they also felt that they had to. So how would you characterize how they understood themselves, the world, and how they understood the function of the state? Well, if we start with how they understood themselves, and they would never say this or even imply this, uh, I think they felt very insecure most of the time. They knew from their own experience back in 1917, in crisis times, how easy it is actually to take power. They knew that it wouldn't take much in, in the way of upsetting apple carts for them to be at risk. They were unable to, uh, to tell the difference between big threats and little threats. Uh, for example, if, if you read in the archive here about what the Politburo is doing periodically, you might find, uh, you know, agenda item number four, will the Japanese attack us in Manchuria, Siberia? 
Agenda item number five, uh, six students in the woods plotting the overthrow of the government. You know, they, they're afraid of everything. I remember once many, many years ago, I visited the uh, Kirov Apartment Museum in what was then Leningrad. And I was stunned because uh, they had his, his suit coat and his tunic on display. He and apparently other Pollock members as well, they had pistol pockets sewn into their coats. They were walking around armed. They were so scared. Now, you know, as Moshe Levin pointed out a while ago, a confident regime, a stable regime, doesn't need terror. The fact that they unleash violence and terror periodically says to me that they're not particularly confident, that they're more afraid than they are secure. Now, of course, it doesn't look that way on the receiving end. On the receiving end, if you're, if you're a target of one of the waves of terror or, or of coercion, it sure looks like a strong state. So a lot of that is kind of in the eyes of the beholder. But I think their self-image was, was insecure, much, much more than anything else. They were pretty much worried all the time. Did that have something to do with the, the way they gathered information? Because, you know, they're, they're getting a lot of police reports, and those reports are coming from the ground up, and at each level, there, there's a certain redaction coming going on, where by the time it gets to the top, they're getting like the, sometimes some of the craziest things. Um, is, it, is this a, a, also a function of the way they were able to even understand the society that they were trying to govern? Boy, that's a good question. Um, one of the things that we just don't know very much about is how they interpreted information that the police gave them, for example. Um, as, as James Harris has pointed out in the book you just mentioned, one of the big defaults, one of the, the faults of the system was that this, the system of providing information was faulty. Uh, the police had a vested interest in magnifying threats because, you know, the more threats, the more police, the more budget. The Bolsheviks were perfectly prepared to believe in magnified threats because they were insecure about everything that was going on about there. And, and so the net result is the information that gets to them seems to be alarming. And it seems that they were prepared, disposed to be alarmed. Saying that, though, we don't know very much about actually how they read this stuff. They didn't talk about it with each other that, that, we, can, that we can find. They didn't act on particular bits of that information, instability or disquiet in some province or something like that. On the other hand, the fact that they did periodically, you know, go postal, as it were, and start shooting a lot of real or imagined enemies suggests that, you know, by and large, they believe the dire reports. But we don't know for sure. What we don't have and what would be great to have, these reports come to the Politburo in react redacted form by the police. Uh, they, they were situations in the countryside or the mood of the population, they seem to have been called. We don't have the sign-in lists. We don't know if they actually read them or not. So that, that's, that's a link in the chain we don't have yet. We, we can guess that they believed them and read them and acted on them that way, but we can't be totally sure. Now, you were one of the first to uh, use the recently opened Soviet archives to examine the Stalinist terror. And like you said, when you were doing your first book, you didn't have archives, or you had the Smolensk archives, so you had a partial local archive, but you didn't have access to central archives. And and now for historians working on the terror, it, it, there's too much material rather than, than too little. 
So what was this experience like for you to to basically face this flood of archival materials? And how did it influence your views on the history of the terror and Stalinism? Yeah, well, at first blush, you know, we were like kids in a candy shop. We said to each other, wow, imagine that this happened on our watch. All of a sudden, everything, not everything, but a huge amount of material is open. This is going to answer all of our questions. Well, it kind of did and it didn't. For one thing, there were some sensations here, but not as many as you might think. In the terror, for example, the only information we had before the archives opened was judicial information on roughly 70,000, 80,000 elite victims. The archives open and we find out that 700,000 people were shot in 1937. The vast majority of the victims were common folk, not members of the elite. That was a sensation. But aside from that, there was just a ton of material that was not so easy to plow through. These archives, including the archives of the Politburo, are badly organized. They're poorly indexed. It takes forever to get a picture of something that's going on. You may, you may page your way through, well, you know this, you've done this too. You may page your way through 200 pages of boring routine before you hit that page that, oh, that's something new. That, that's something worth following. It's not, it's not easy to do. It takes a lot of time. It takes a certain kind of fanaticism and perseverance uh, to, keep, to keep going at it. And everybody, both the conservatives and the revisionists, championed that it had proved them right. And, and neither claim was, was really accurate. There was so much material there that you could, you know, it's like reading Lenin. You can find whatever you want to find in there to, to back up your cause. But it did, it did raise the possibility for the first time for me, because this was my interest, of actually understanding how the system worked. Uh, what were the details of practices and procedures? How did people get appointed to jobs? What, what language was used uh, in, in these documents, uh, in these archives? So, so for me, yes, there were some sensations, uh, but not that many. What for me was sensational, and I think for a lot of other uh, serious scholars, what was sensational here was the ability to immerse yourself in the system, to immerse yourself in the documents, and therefore come to feel, kind of, come to understand how the system really worked, even on a mundane level. And how did you, like, what understanding did you come, have you come to the, on, the, on that level, on the mundane level, or how the system worked through the, the archival documents? Well, a couple of things. I uh, think the chaos that I saw in Smolensk in that first book was not just local. There was chaos at the top. No one necessarily knew all the time what the right hand and the left hand were doing. They spent a lot of time complaining about the lack of fulfillment of decisions, as the phrase went. In other words, we here in the Politburo are giving orders and no one is doing it. Which, which again raised the question that I, that I kind of smelled in Smolensk. There are a lot of interest groups here in this bureaucracy, even in the Communist Party bureaucracy. There are interest groups that may or may not have the same interests as the Politburo, especially the further you get from Moscow, that, that everybody has got their little deal going on. Everybody has got a little game going on. And now with all of these archives, we can begin to piece some of that together. That, that in, it, is, it is less a homogenized system than even I had dreamed back in 1985. You can see that as chaos, or you can just see that as normal human sociology. You know, any large organization is going to be fragmented, especially a large organization where 
the telephones don't work so well, where, where you don't have you don't have copiers or even that many typewriters, mail doesn't work. So you know what the archives are giving us, or at least me, and I find it exciting. Not everybody does, an ability to get the mood of the system, an ability to figure out, you know, what were the formal and informal rules of behavior, an ability to sort of read documents and and understand on several levels who wrote it to whom and for what. Uh, we never had that ability before. Now this is, as I said before, this is hard work. This is tedious work. You have to sit there for a very long time, uh, but it pays off. It's, re it's rewarding to do that. Uh, we, we were never able to do that before. We were just guessing at stuff. Well, in, in 1999, you published uh, your second major book, The Road to Terror, which was one of the first books to publish English translations of documents related to the terror. Talk about the genesis of that book and, and some of its main findings. How did you come to get these materials and put them out in the collection? And what did, it, what is, what did you try to say with this? Book? Well, the materials uh, about the terror, documentary materials, were, were part of the first treasure trove that opened. It was, it was all pretty much there. Hard to find, necessarily, even... Even in the documents of the Central Committee and the Politburo, they were, they were stashed in lots of different places. But as I read through these documents, trying to figure out how I might put together a collection and, and edit and discuss them, I became struck with the language of the documents, the language that they used. And it, it dawned on me, and this, this became the theme of the book when I was about halfway through it, it became the theme of the book, language was one of their attempts to control things. You know, if you're an insecure regime, not very numerous, not very experienced, full of disobedience, and you're trying to run a country that spans a huge part of the globe, where there wasn't even a phone line to Kazakhstan until 1935, this is, an, this is a daunting thing. How do you control? How do you govern? Well, you can issue decrees and orders. Eh, maybe they work, maybe they don't. You can use violence and force. You can say, look, everyone, we're going to be on the same page with this or we're going to arrest you. You can try, you know, gentle propaganda to, to govern. Or you can use language. You can appropriate to yourself the ability to define what words mean. And these Bolsheviks, you know, we don't think of this automatically. These guys were wordsmiths. They thought seriously about how to use language. You know, the, the d division between Lenin's Bolsheviks and the other Marxists, the Mensheviks, in 1903 was about the wording of a resolution. It was about wording a document. I learned as I got into the archives that at the end of December every year, the Politburo spent a long time, a crazy long time, figuring out the exact wording of the New Year's resolutions from the Central Committee. What words to use? What do these words mean? Now, one way you can use that to govern is that you can say, all right, now the enemy are Trotskyists. Well, the, the question arises, what is a Trotskyist? If you are in the center, you now define what is a Trotskyist. And there are documents here that, that say things like, well, a Trotskyist used to be this, and then it became that, and now it's the other thing. You, you appropriate the ability to define words in hopes that everyone else will accept your definitions and therefore be consistent, be on the same page as you. This is what I, I finally came to with, this, with the Road to Terror book. It's about language, and it's about trying to deploy language in a way 
that helps you govern the country. The, the other thing that struck me was it didn't work. You know, years ago, Moshe, Moshe Levin figured some of this out. Kulaks, rich peasants at the time of collectivization, targeted for, for repression. And he wrote an article simply entitled, Who Was the Soviet Kulak? How do you define what a Kulak is? Same thing happened with Trotskyists. Stalin says, okay, this is what a Trotskyist is. Then as that percolates down the pyramid, down the system, the definition of Trotskyist gets reappropriated by people for their own purposes. So by the time it gets down to, I don't know, provincial or city level, a, a Trotskyist is somebody I don't like. In other words, it's appropriated in useful ways to people. So th that book, I think, was about, was about language attempts to establish a precise language as a means of control uh, and how it didn't work because everybody can, can redefine it as they see fit. I was, I was thinking about a, a quote from Mao Zedong about how you govern a big country. Uh, some, some interviewer asked him, how do, you, how do you govern a big country? And Mao says, oh, we don't govern. It's too big. And, you know, we really can't control very much. What we do is use language and use force and use all the tools we have to sort of push the tides in one direction. And then they always go too far. and We got to run around and push them back. And we use all these tools to do that. I think, I think that that's what's going on here with Stalinism. They, they can't admit it, of course. They can't admit that a whole lot of stuff out there is not under their control because they got to look tough. They got to look authoritative. They got to look efficient. But they, they have recourse to an incredible repertoire of things, many of which fail, which are attempts to administer. Do you think that this use of language is what allowed for the terror to spin out of control so quickly and just start engulfing so many people? It had a lot to do with it, sure, sure. Because there was no, there was no available language, no available language to explain things other ways. In other words, the mine caves in, or the train runs off the tracks, or the newspaper doesn't come out one day. Now, a normal person in normal times would say, oh, well, that's because, you know, the system is bad. You can't run 50 trains on the track. Yes, they'll fly off. You can't, you can't build 50 mines without proper shoring. And all the propaganda and enthusiasm in the world isn't going to help you. You can't say that. That's an unavailable explanation because that calls into question the policy. That calls into question the whole planned economy, calls into question the, the wise decisions of the Politburo. That's not an available explanation. What is and becomes an available explanation in a time of crisis and fear and, and even paranoia is this stuff doesn't work because it's being sabotaged. That takes a momentum of its own. And one of the reasons why it took Stalin a while, eventually when he decided to, to stop the terror was because there wasn't available language to do that. He couldn't say one Tuesday morning, all right, folks, what a mess. We got to stop this. He can't say that because it's his mess and everybody knew it. Therefore, he has to, he has to develop language to deploy to do exactly the opposite of what he's been doing and still have it look consistent. That's, that's very hard to do. One of the reasons why it spins out of control and stays out of control for so long is that there was no other way to explain stuff other than conspiracy. 
So speaking of conspiracy and this mindset, your next book was about Nikolai Yezhov, the head of the uh, this the NKVD during the terror. The, the book is Yezhov, The Rise of Stalin's Iron Fist. And it's basically a political biography of, of Nikolai Yezhov. And your book ends right before the terror starts. How does Lyazov's life shed light on the Soviet system and Stalinism and political violence? Well, this is what I was trying to get at here. Not the entire history of the terror through the eyes of its administrator. We already had that. We, we already knew a lot of the evil deeds of Comrade Yezhov. What we didn't have was an answer to the question, where does somebody like this come from? Uh, what are the origins? What produces somebody who can organize the execution of six, 700,000 people? What did he think he was doing? What was he as a type? And what I found out, or as, as one person said, what's a nice guy like this doing in a place like that? He seems to have been, by the way, a nice guy. Uh, fun at parties, had a great baritone singing voice, kind and chivalrous. Uh, women who ran into him on vacation just fawned over him, even though he was less than five feet tall. But he came from a particular milieu. He was a factory worker before the revolution. He was a red guard during the revolution. He had an intense class hatred to him. He worked in a factory that in 1917 executed, hanged, murdered, tore to pieces the factory management. He came from a social conflict place. That meant that he had a distrust of bureaucracy, of leadership, of all kinds. He's perfectly happy to believe the worst about any kind of an administrator. In the Civil War, he was at the front. He, therefore, was conspiracy material by, by disposition. You know, he, it didn't take much to convince him that the opposition, the Trotskyists and so forth, really were up to something. I mean, he, he just bought into that right away. That's one component. The other component is, like anybody who gets very far in the Stalin system, or the Soviet system, or any system, he knew how to manipulate. He knew how to act. He knew how to further his own career. A lot of this book is about how he played Stalin. What does that mean? I'm not saying that Yezhov invented the terror, or directed the terror, or even controlled the terror. Uh, that's square, squarely on Stalin's doorstep. What Yezhov knew how to do, though, was tell the boss things in ways that furthered his own interests. He wanted to be the head of the secret police for years, at least from 1934. But there was a guy already running it, an experienced policeman, Yagoda. What's interesting to me is, over a period of two or three years, the way that Yezhov systematically undermined Yagoda with the boss, without, without appearing to do so saying things like, well, far be it for me to criticize the way the secret police is running, but gee, look at this, look at that. Uh, so in addition to being a kind of person imbued with class hatred, a person prepared to believe the worst about people, he was a skilled manipulator, a player. And I think that the more we know about the people around Stalin, not just him, but the others, they could not survive as long as they did unless they too were players, unless they knew how to tell the boss what he wanted to hear in useful ways. But the thing also about Yuzhov, another dimension to his life and another thing he represents about that system is how quickly someone from a factory worker could 
rise to basically the second most powerful position in the government. From my understanding from your book, Yezhov was a really diligent worker. What what does he represent in that as an administrator within the Stalinist system? I think as a type, if we want to talk about types, he was kind of like Stalin. Not a lot of formal education, really an autodidact, read a lot of books, taught himself a lot of stuff, but with basic street smarts about how to further his own interests, how to maneuver within a system, combine that with a capacity to work day and night. There weren't that many people like that. There aren't that many people like that in any in any organization. And especially, you know, the new Soviet regime in the early 20s, there are not a lot of people in the party moving into administration who have any experience at all with it with administration and therefore with any capability at all. Yeshov was one of those people like Stalin for whom a huge capacity of work combined with a basic cleverness. Uh, and therefore, he, he moved up the ladder quickly. He attracted the attention of big people because he gave him a job and he did it. He, he was assiduous. He was diligent. He worked constantly. Uh, he was not in the least bit slacking off on anything. Uh, one, of, one of his early bosses in the 1920s said, Yezhov is unbelievable. You give him something to do and he does it. He doesn't need a lot of direction. He doesn't need a lot of control. He's smart. And, and by that, he meant sort of smart in an instinctive sort of way about, about how to get things done. He's smart. The only problem, his boss said in this particular evaluation, was getting him to stop. This guy does everything to the very end and then some, which may explain something about the terror later as well. Now, in, in one of your essays, a really interesting essay, you described Stalin as a prime minister. What do you mean by that in, in terms of how Stalin ruled and his relationships to his inner circle? Well, you know, several people have noticed or have observed that Stalin, for all his dictatorial power, liked to work in groups. He thought of Team Stalin, the people around him. He listened to their advice. He gave them specialties to do and listen to them. He didn't just function entirely as an individual. Even Khrushchev told us he hated to be alone, Stalin. He always liked people around him. And therefore, he, he trusted his minions, his lieutenants, his advisors, however you want to, to designate them. But the other thing is, you know, in modern political systems, and, and I, I thought about this as I was reading something about Margaret Thatcher and the way she did things. In modern political systems, no matter what flavor they come in, the cabinet actually meets as a body very rarely. Why are they going to all sit in a room and have the agriculture guy listen to foreign policy, for example? It's, it's inefficient. In modern political systems, the complexity of things automatically means that a cabinet, or in this case, a politburo, is less an institution than it is a cluster of people with specialties. So how do things happen? Well, they don't happen in committee meetings, either Stalin dictating or listening. They happen because, okay, how are we going to plan for aluminum this year? Well, a couple of guys on the Politburo who know something about aluminum, they get together and say, well, here's, here's three or four options. We can, we can put these before the boss. And they talk to a couple more people. They then go to the boss and say, well, you know, we've kind of come up with A, B, and C here. The boss looks at all that and says, okay, I pick B. Well, this is an interesting power relation, by the way. The boss picks. He's the boss. But B was presented to him by a group 
of his lieutenants. The decision is made, okay, we're going to do B. Then the Politburo is gathered together to vote for it. So decision-making here, uh, political scientists call it fragmented or segmented decision-making. You have little subgroups of cabinets and Politburos that, that do things. Very rarely does the, the group, as a body, as a cabinet, have a meeting and decide anything. It's just too complicated. And also in the, in the late part of the 30s, the, the Politburo never really met. I mean, there's no, not much record of them meeting. A lot of the decisions were taken by tally. That's right. That's right. Now, the, the Russian word is aprosom. In other words, you, you call up everybody on the Politburo and say, well, most of us have decided to do this. Is that okay with you? And they always say yes, of course, all the time. No one votes no. No one argues. They do that because when you get that phone call, you know that Stalin has already picked B. You have to sign, sign on to it. Uh, nobody's going to argue with Stalin about something like this. The other thing, too, is, okay, here's what we decided on aluminum. B, is that okay with you? Yes, I vote yes over the, over the phone. You're not going to question the guys who know something about aluminum. History departments work that way, by the way. You know, Subcommittees decide stuff, and you know, you're you going to go with whatever they say. So you're right. In 1938 and 1939, the Politburo met almost never. Yet the archive is full of documents that are presented as decisions of the Politburo. On May 1, 1938, the Politburo decided X, Y, and Z. Well, you look and you see that on May 1, the Politburo didn't meet. They hadn't met since February and wouldn't meet again until October. What's, what's happening there is decisions are being made behind the scenes in a segmented way, all running through the boss eventually, but formally and legally, it's got to be a decision of the Politburo. So they invent a meeting. Now, in your most recent book, Practicing Stalinism, this book it takes another turn, but I still think it's very much linked to some of the things you were putting forward in your first book, Origins of the Great Purges. In Practicing Stalinism, you focus on clans within the Bolshevik Party in the 1920s and 1930s. How did clans work under Stalin, and what was their place in the practicing of Stalinist politics? Well, I think that clans were really endemic to this system. I mean, think again about this problem of taking power with no experience, with no institutions you can rely on, with no laws no published rules. It's only entirely natural that, that personal groups come to be power centers. One could say that this happens in Russia a lot. Well, maybe, maybe, but it happens other places too. If you think about it for a minute, networks of persons, personal loyalty, are the oldest form of political organization there is. They predate institutions. A powerful king or prince or clan elder has people who are loyal to him. There's an exchange of loyalty and, and support here. It's a kind of default way of running things when, for whatever reason, you don't have institutions. The mafia works this way, for example. Connections, therefore, transmissions of communication and power, don't happen in agencies or institutions. They cut across those lines. You call somebody you know or somebody who owes you a favor. You consult with people and exchange power and obligations and, and debts this way. It's, it's unbelievable when you read these documents from Stalin on down. Again, the language that they use. Okay, there's a crisis. There's a crisis in Omsk about mining. There's pr trouble with mining in Omsk. The reflex here is not to get 
the Ministry of Industry to figure out what's up there. The thing here is not to get some mining engineers and figure out what's up there. What they say and the way they say it, let's send some of our people there to take a look. Our people, our guys, people we know and trust. That's the Bolshevik reflex, our people, send some of our people. And by the way, it's the same way today. The Russian press today, as you know, openly uses the word clan to describe, describe the system. Back then they didn't. In the Stalin period, they didn't because they had to maintain the facade that this was a legitimate government with constitutions and institutions. It was part, part of their insecurity complex. And they, had, they had to look official and formal. But behind the scenes, it was all about our people that we trust and other people that we don't. You can, you can also see it in the terror itself in lots of ways. For example, when someone is arrested for whatever reason, his network is also arrested at the same time, up and down the tree. The people who depended on him, the people he gave jobs to, the people who are part of his network, which, which leads me to suspect that from Stalin's point of view, one of the motivations for the elite part of the purge was to uproot clans, other clans. Stalin ruled by clan too, by the way. The Politburo was his lieutenant. They were his capo regimes and they had their networks under them. Stalin, I think, was not against clan as principle. He was against other people's clans and, prince, and other people's clans who may cause him a problem someday. They had to be uprooted. Uh, you know, one of the new genres of documents that we have are the records of interrogations, the, the minutes of how the police interrogated somebody. In a lot of systems, other systems, you know, the police as seen on TV, haul somebody in and start to question them. The kinds of questions they ask in our system, for example, have to do with what did you do and when did you do it? In the Stalin system, that's going to be added on later, what you did and when you did it. What we want to know now is who your friends are. What we want to know now is not what or when, but who. And it shows you that the Clan is everything to the police. Uh, it's, it's a way to get things done. It's, uh, you can rise and fall with a clan. And it's one of those things where when I first sort of figured it out, I thought, why didn't I see this before? I mean, this is so obvious. Uh, it, it, dawned, it dawned on me fairly late in my career, actually. I, you know, I spent years sitting in archives and libraries trying to figure out how the Bolshevik Party worked. What were the rules? What were the norms? What were the practices? And then, I think I said this in, in, in the preface to practicing Stalinism, and then I would go off socially and spend time with my friends and watch them network, get, get things done in their little clans, and how their loyalties had nothing to do with the law, but had a lot to do with friends and competitors. It took me the longest time to figure out that it worked that way in the government, too that it's all one system of personal loyalties. And I think that you can't spend any time in Russia at all without seeing this. With your own friends, with the way an archive works, who's loyal to who, uh, who should you go to and who should you not go to to get something done. You know, and it's one of those things that finally hit me and I thought, why didn't I figure this out before? This is so obvious. When I was researching practicing Stalinism, I frequently worked with some dear old ladies, archivists in the archive, 
who knew the archive like the back of their hand, even though there wasn't a catalog at the time, they knew where all the documents were. And so when I, I would ever start on a new project, I'd call them together and we'd have some tea and I'd get their suggestions about where in this confusing mass of documents I should look. So when I, when I had this idea, I said, okay, what I want to study is uh, networks. And they kind of looked at each other and frowned and shook their heads. Okay, what I want to study here is, um, you know, networks of personal connections that have nothing to do with the official way things get done. And they frowned and they looked at each other and they shook their heads. And then finally one of them said, oh, I think I understand. You mean real life. <laughs> I said, yes, stupid that I am, that's exactly what I'm going for here. But so how did this work with, because a lot of your work over the years has de dealt with this center-periphery relations, and you, you've mentioned uh, this a bit in passing in our conversation today. Uh, how did center-periphery relations work with the this clan structure, and how did this function as part of the terror? Well, again, if you, if you think about it, it's it's a kind of a natural way to organize things when you don't don't have pre-existing structures at your disposal. Okay, you're a Bolshevik, you've been sent to Omsk, and your job is to run Omsk. The party, the economy, the police, you got to run all of that. Chances are, a lot of the people in Omsk don't like you. Chances are, you're in a hostile atmosphere in, in terms of the population. How are you going to run things? Well, it seems to me a natural way to run things is assemble around you a network of people you trust, a network of people who feel like they're going to be loyal to you, a network of people you can trust to carry out your, your instructions. Some of them may be police. Some of them may be agricultural administrators. Some of them may be judges or traffic cops. doesn't really matter. They're bound together in a single network, Sean's network to run Omsk. In a way, it's unofficial. Their job titles don't really matter so much because they get their authority in Omsk from proximity to me. The closer you are to me, the more powerful you are. It works exactly the same in Moscow with Stalin. Doesn't matter what your job really is, the closer you are to Stalin, the better, the better relationship, the closer relationship you have with him, that's what makes you powerful not your title as commissar or something like that. So it's a natural way to, to do a very difficult job to run a territory somewhere far from Moscow in a potentially hostile atmosphere. Now that means if you're going to really run things and show results to Moscow, you have to have a pretty tight little machine here. You have to have a machine that works. And it works because of personal loyalty it works because everybody's got each other's backs all the time against against competitors. That inevitably becomes its own power center. It's a kind of centrifugal force kind of thing. Uh, if, if I'm Stalin and I want things to continue to function in Omsk, I'm going to give you more and more authority to do that. At some point it goes over the line where the guys running Omsk think to themselves, and this is an old phrase from, from Tsarist times, Moscow and the Tsar are far away you become your own little Stalin. You become the prince of Omsk. And this is one of the huge contradictions of the system for Stalin. To make it run, you've got to delegate authority to these guys in the provinces. The more authority you delegate, the more independent they become. 
uh, and James James Harris described this in his work about uh, Sverdlovsk. And at a certain point, Stalin realizes that these guys aren't really listening to him. And more than that, they're lying to him. They're saying that, that they produced 100 tons of steel and they only did 50. They're lying. That's when the chickens come home to roost, when Stalin decides that he can no longer tolerate the independence that he's been forced to delegate to get things done. And a lot of the terror is smashing these regional centers. Yeah, this this comes to my next question is why you think Stalin chose terror in 37? Because the terror, of course, is, is many different processes, right? You have this smashing of the Bolshevik elite. You have these high-profile cases of people like Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Bukharin. You have the mass operations where the vast majority of victims of the terror are shot, and they're just regular common folk and former criminals and kulaks, et cetera, et cetera. And you have this weird 1937, the terror erupts at the moment in which they were contemplating, they have a new constitution, they were actually contemplating, preparing for elections, and they pull back on this. What was he trying to achieve with this vomiting of violence? That's a colorful way to put it. Uh, I, again, I, I don't think he was in a position to have a big plan to achieve. I think, I think once again, he's putting out fires or what he perceives to be fires. A lot of things that happened in 1937 don't seem to relate to each other, even on the level of violence. You, you have uh, these mass operations where a lot of people are shot, normal, common people are shot. Uh, the troikas that arranged this consist of people who themselves are about to be arrested on a different line, a different track of stuff. I think what happened in 1937, from Stalin's point of view, was a whole lot of scary things seemed to be coming together at the same time. Uh, you mentioned the Constitution. The new Constitution of 1936 basically gave everybody the right to vote. Now, vote for what? Didn't really matter. If you have the right to vote, you are a citizen. That meant that people who used to be non-citizens, kulaks, peasants, enemies of the regime, are now citizens. If they were exiled into Siberia, they can now come home. They come home and they are unhappy. They start organizing electoral campaigns in the provinces, campaigns that are religious in many cases, campaigns that are anti-Soviet in many cases. The Constitution opened a whole Pandora's box. Not that these elections were going to transform the government, but they provided a forum for enemies of the regime to organize legally out there in the open. You had an economic failure in 1936 and 1937. S victims, somebody has to be found to blame that. You, you had an increasing sense by Stalin that his local administrators are lying to him, lying to him more and more. You had a, a census in 1937 that had a very scary item in it. That scary item was a very large percentage of the population was prepared to tell the census taker that they didn't like communism, but they did like Jesus. A, a religious revival seemed to be going on here. You know, as one of my students pointed out to, to me in a, in a seminar, you know, if you're going to be a true believer, you can go with communism or you can go with Christianity. Christianity, therefore, is regarded by the communists as a competitor, a potentially dangerous competitor. You also have, you know, an increasingly cloudy international situation. You have, you have a sense that 
these former oppositionists who are still running around may be up to no good. Why would you think that, by the way? Why would you imagine that the old Bolsheviks are really conspiring against you? Because you're one of them and you know they're professional conspirators. It's what they do. It's what you do, right? You all came from the same kitchen, as the Russians would say. So I think in 1937, a whole bunch of scary stuff seemed to be happening at the same time. Therefore, I think Stalin decides that something, something drastic has to be done here to deal with these threats individually. And one of the things that has to be done here is to make sure that these threats, individually or collectively, don't get to the point where they can overthrow you. How, how could they overthrow you? The army and the police. Therefore, they become targets as well. And what you get is this, is this maelstrom of violence in all directions against lots of targets. Some of the targets, you know, you're using to kill other targets. Or it's not very logical. It's not very consistent, but it's, it's, it's like a storm or an explosion. And I don't think that Stalin planned it this way for 1937. He just became convinced, I think, and we don't know for sure. He doesn't have a diary. We don't know for sure. He seemed to have become convinced that these threats individually and collectively just couldn't be tolerated anymore. Yeah, one of the things that I found interesting in, I think it was in The Road to Terror, you pointed out that, you know, they would send out quota lists for, you know, shot imprisonment to the obelisks. And then sometimes the, the locals would come back and say, oh, no, we need to actually up the quota. This isn't high enough. And they would be approved by the center, of course, without much questioning. Uh, and, and there's a really interesting part where even Stalin says, wow, this is a lot. Um, you know, you, if we just rounded up a few genuine Trotskyists and did that, this would be more effective. How do you interpret this this dynamic between the fact that people in the provinces are, are trying to get the center to up the numbers? Well, this is a story that had been going on since the early 20s, by the way. These, these poor administrators who were sent out I keep using Omsk as an example. You're, you're sent out to a province to run things. That's a, that's a damned hard thing to do. You can run things with propaganda. Maybe people listen, maybe they don't. You can run things with threats and force. Um, you can run things with education. But for a lot of people out there in the provinces, Bolshevik administrators, the easiest way to run things was to shoot the bad guys, shoot the usual suspects, the guys you don't like. They begin as early as right after the Civil War at saying to Moscow, look, I got to shoot a thousand people here. This is getting out of control. Now, Moscow would typically say yes, okay. But what Moscow insists on here at every step of the way, Moscow's not against shooting people. They insist on them being the ones to decide yes, no, or how many. This is a struggle that goes on all through the 20s with the locals sometimes wanting to shoot people without asking Moscow. Moscow insists that they have final say-so. So in the mass operations that, that you referred to, by the way, they are not quotas. The documents refer to limits. The documents say, okay, every province has a limit, a maximum number of people you can shoot, a maximum number of people you can imprison and send to the gulag, because the history of this is that frequently the locals want to shoot more than the center does. Stalin, by the way, is on record since 1933 and as late as the spring of 1937 as being against any more mass operations. He said, they're, me they're messy. They're not, they're not effective. They're bad PR for us in the country. The locals, though, like 
mass operations because they can deal with a whole bunch of troublesome folks at once in a stroke. So when when Stalin does decide, you know, to allow some gunplay in 1937, he says, yes, but these are limits and you have to ask me if you want more. He insists on reserving that particular authority. Now, he usually says yes. Not always, but he usually says yes, but he insists on him being the one to decide. So it's important, I think, to make this distinction between quotas and, and limits. And finally, I want to talk a bit about the, your most recent research that you've been conducting for the last couple of years on, on death and burial in Russia. Uh, what are you looking to do with this? And, and does this new work fit within the work you've done throughout your career? Or is this, are you trying to go into another direction? Well, you know, someone might say, well, you've been looking at violence now for, for 30 years. You finally got to the graveyard. That's not, that's not it at all. First of all, on a personal level, I and a lot of people I know have always enjoyed Russian cemeteries. They tend to be artistic places. They tend to have fascinating tombstones uh, with carvings and inscriptions. You know, I've always enjoyed wandering through there. But what, what I've decided to try to pursue here is the history of funeral practices over watersheds. Oh, to take to take an example. We suspect that before Christianity came to Russia, there were certain funeral observances having to do with burying the person not necessarily immediately, a a series of rituals between death and burial, a sense that the dead soul spirit stays around for a while, takes a while to leave. What you see is that these basic notions, I call them practices, you could call them beliefs, are adopted by Christianity, the same way Christianity adopted lots of local stuff in in lots of places in order to get a foothold. And then, strangely enough, in the Soviet period, we're against religion, we're atheists here, a lot of these practices continue. Here's an example. Uh, We think in pagan times, the general idea was that three days after death, is the soonest you should bury somebody, because otherwise their soul will come back and haunt you. It takes three days for the spirit to wrench itself free of the body. Well, the Christians come along and, and say, oh, gee, this, this three-day stuff's pretty dug in. They say, yes, that's right. For three days, uh, angels take your spirit around and show you stuff. Get to the Soviet period. Okay, no spirits at all, folks. None of that. No Christianity, no spirituality. But, you know, um, excuse us, but it takes three days to get this paperwork done. In other words, practices endure over huge watersheds. Uh, I'm interested in how that happens. I'm interested in how texts and ornamentation on tombstones, forms of tombstones, endure over huge watersheds. To give you an example, one of my friends, uh, Leonid, died. Uh, his wife, Tanya, was an atheist. She was a communist. She was not only a communist, she was the local party secretary for ideology. She was one hard cookie as far as religion was concerned. Three days after Leonid died, there's the first of a series of ceremonies. I go there and there's a priest and there's incense and there, there are prayers. And when it was over, I went to, went to Tanya and I said, what's up with this? You just organized and paid for 
a religious ceremony for Leonid. And I don't, I know you don't believe that. And she gave an answer. That's the same answer I heard with, for lots of questions like this. And it was an answer that I heard in politics when I asked people, for example, why is Russia always a system where one guy rules for life? The answer is always a kind of a frown, a pause. I don't know. We just do it that way. And that's something that comes out of politics. Therefore, the, the cemetery book is also going to be about the persistence of practices and traditions over watersheds, like, like clans in politics, like cemeteries and, and tombstones in that, in that particular world, the persistence of stuff. And the fascinating part of, for me is, is this answer. Traditions are observed, practices are observed, when by rights they should have died out, when by rights they should be discouraged by the regime. They continue somehow in the back of people's heads. Something tells them to do it this way. Their grandparents did it this way. Their ancestors did it this way. Something says, we just, I don't know, we just need to do it this way because that's what we do. That's what, that's what Russians do. That particular transmission belt for the persistence of practices is something I want to try to get at. That was Arch Getty, a distinguished professor of history at UCLA. He's the author of several books and articles on the Great Terror, political violence, and Stalinism. His most recent book is Practicing Stalinism, Bolsheviks, Boyars, and the Persistence of Tradition, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean Ru Sean's Russia Blog. Write a review or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast is cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who've contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. The gypsy woman told my mother Before I was born You got a boy child coming Gonna be a son of a gun Gonna make pretty women Jump in shout Then the world wanna know I know I'm here.